Well, good morning again. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. It's a joy to be worshiping with you. And as always, it is a privilege to be able to proclaim God's word to you this morning. Uh, this morning, we're in our second week of Advent, and we are going to hear again from the prophet Isaiah. Last week, we heard from chapter 2 of Isaiah about Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, the Jerusalem that was present then in Isaiah's day, and the promised Jerusalem where the mountain of the Lord would be raised up above all other mountains, above all other gods, both for Israel and for the nations of the earth. This week, we're skipping ahead a few chapters to Isaiah 9. But there are a few things that we need to know about what happened in between Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 9 for us to understand what is happening in Isaiah 9. The first is that Isaiah told us some things in chapter 7 about the temptations that Judah was facing. Remember, after Solomon died, Solomon's David's son, he was king. After he died, uh, Israel was split between north and and south. It became a divided kingdom. The north was called Israel in the south, which is where Jerusalem was and where the line of David as king continued. The south was called Judah. And at the time of Isaiah, both Judah and Israel are relatively weak when it comes to military might. And so what we see in Isaiah 7 is that Israel, the northern kingdom, has made a military alliance with Syria their neighbors to the north. They have joined together because they are both terrified of Assyria, who is the world power at the time. So Israel and Syria make this pact to band together and protect themselves against Assyria. And in Isaiah 7, Syria and Israel are coming down to Judah, and they're going to try to force King Ahaz, the king of Judah, to join them in this pact. God tells Isaiah that this is happening, and he goes to Ahaz and tells him not to join the alliance. In essence, he tells them that both of these nations are going to crumble, and that their trust should not be in those nations, but their trust for protection and stability should be in God and in God alone. Well, Ahaz does not trust the Lord. In fact, he goes on later to make a secret alliance with Assyria against Israel and Syria. And it turns out that Assyria will be Israel's downfall. God will use them as a tool for his judgment. And in chapter 8, right before we get to Isaiah 9, God tells us some of what that judgment will look like. The results of what Israel and Judah have done in their sin. He gives a grim picture of that judgment that will come on his people when Assyria destroys them and takes them into exile. This is how chapter 8 ends. It says, They, that's God's people, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their God, against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the state of God's people after their judgment, darkness and gloom, distress and anguish. But what Isaiah is going to tell us in chapter 9 is it will not always be 
this way. Judgment instead will give way to blessing and peace. But before we hear those words, let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding them. Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, we ask that you would open our eyes and open our hearts. Give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might see your son, Jesus Christ, and the joy and hope that are found in him alone. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to go from verse 1 through verse 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at Isaiah 9 this morning, we're going to see three things that are going to come out to us. First, we're going to see hope in the place of darkness in verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to see that hope explained a little bit more. We're going to see the joy and the peace that are coming to Israel in verses 3 through 5. And then finally, we're going to get a closer look at why exactly this is happening. And we're going to see the light of the world in verses 6 and 7. The first thing that we're going to see is hope in the place of darkness. Read verses 1 through 2 with me. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. On the heels of the judgment that he prophesies in chapter 8, Isaiah gets a vision of a more distant future. What we read in chapter 8 is future for the readers of Isaiah. They will be thrust into judgment or into thick darkness when judgment comes upon them. But the beginning of chapter 9 looks even further into the future. Isaiah calls that judgment he talked about in chapter 8 the former time, but now he is going to be talking about the latter 
time. This is reminiscent of what Isaiah said last week in chapter 2. The Lord has a day, a day that he will turn things around, a day where judgment will give way to peace. And the Lord gives Isaiah a vision of what that day will be like. In that former time, the time of judgment, the time of exile, there was gloom and anguish. Verse 1 says that the Lord brought the land of Zebulun and Naphtali into contempt. Those places, if you look on a map, are at the northernmost part of Israel. They're on the outskirts. They are referred to as Galilee of the nations or of the Gentiles because they border the foreign nations around Israel. And they were always the first to receive the attacks of the enemy when the enemies came to attack Israel. This was where Assyria struck first when they came to take Israel into exile. So Isaiah says in that former time, there was anguish and gloom and contempt for them. He refers to the people of that land in verse 2. He says, they are those who walked in darkness and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. That's the former time, the time of judgment. But in the latter time, this same place would be made glorious. And these same people would see a great light. When Jesus began his ministry, Matthew 4 tells us that he went north to Galilee. The majority of his ministry was in Galilee, not in the heart of Israel, but on the outskirts, not in the royal house, but in the wilderness. And when he says this, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 that we just read. He says that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that they had seen a great light in this land, had now been fulfilled in Jesus. And we need to notice the significance of the placement of God's salvation. Our God is a God of restoration, not a God of restarting. When I was in college, there was a room on our hall that had a Nintendo 64 and always had games going. It was either Super Smash Brothers or NFL Blitz. And one of the hallmarks of those games is that when someone would be, be, would be beaten really badly, they're getting to the end of the game, they know there's no chance to win, or something particularly frustrating would happen, they would jump up and slam the reset button on the Nintendo 64. They wanted a do-over. They wanted to restart. They wanted to end what was happening and start over afresh. Our God does not do that. He does not see the frustration of his people and hit reset and do away with them and start over with something entirely new. He doesn't scrap us and start with a different people. One of the most important messages of Isaiah is that the judgment of God, when it is set on his people, is pictured as a purifying fire, not a destroying Fire. His judgment brings about the restoration for his people. And these first two verses are a wonderful picture of that truth. As one commentator says, God came to his people first where they had suffered the most. And from that place, he launched salvation for the world. Listen to that again. God came to his people first where they had suffered the most. 
And from that place, he launched salvation for the world. Think about this in your own life. God will often take our weakest areas, the places that we have suffered the most, and use those areas to show show us his redemption and salvation, the clearest and the strongest. In verses 3 through 5, we begin to see the peace and the joy that that light brings. Read those verses with me. Isaiah says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The very first thing we see in verse 3 says something about the effect of the nation. What is going to happen to the nation? And this light is going to cause the nation to multiply. Do you see that in verse 3? The first line, the nation will multiply. Throughout Isaiah, we keep seeing him refer to a remnant, this tiny group of those who are faithful in Israel, who even though they go into judgment, they remain faithful to God. It's a remnant. It's a small group. And the first thing Isaiah tells us is it will not always be small. I know that I mentioned this last week, but this ought to be an encouragement to us. We live in a time where Christianity is waning, at least in our neck of the woods. But we need to also remember that we live in a time where the remnant has been multiplied. It has become a multitude of nations. As Jesus says in the parable of the mustard seed, the kingdom starts off as a tiny seed, but it grows into a huge tree. The final word of the book of Acts is unhindered or without hindrance. And the message is that no matter what the circumstances look like, at this time Paul is in prison awaiting his execution. No matter what the circumstances look like, the gospel moves forward with power and without hindrance. Jesus promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against her. This is the message of confidence, not in our own schemes and plans, but in God's powerful working in his people. The nation will multiply. Secondly, we see that the number of people aren't the only thing that is going to be multiplied. Joy has also multiplied. He says, you have increased its joy. That's the joy of the nation. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In judgment, their land was ravaged and they were conquered by other nations. Now in their salvation, they have an abundance of food from the land and they are divvying up the spoils of victory. They have overflowing joy in the place of their sorrows. After we see this joy that the light brings, Isaiah shows us three reasons for that joy. It's three repeated fours. Do you see that in verses four, five, and six? For the yoke, 
for every boot, for to us. All of these things are giving reasons why this joy has come. Verse 4 explains that this joy has come because God's people have been liberated. This is the language of slavery. Look at these words, yoke, burden, staff, rod, oppressor. God has taken all of these tools of oppression and broken them in order to free us. These are reminiscent of some of the words that Jesus uses in Matthew 11. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. That's the language of slavery. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice the use of some of those same words that we see in Isaiah. Yoke, burden, even labor and rest are in this category of slavery and oppression. Jesus has come to break all that has oppressed us. And instead of oppressive labor, he gives us rest. Instead of a yoke that is burdensome, he gives us a yoke that is easy and light. That's one reason for the overflowing joy that God's people now have. They have been redeemed. Verse 5 gives another four, another reason. It says that this joy has also come from the tools of war being destroyed. This is very similar to what we read last week in Isaiah 2, 4. God is victorious in war against Israel's enemies, and they will never be able to wage war against them again. He has taken all of their tools and thrown them into the fire. There's nothing that they can hold over his people anymore. He brings peace to them. Both of these, verses 4 and 5, are reasons given for this abundant joy that God's people have. The remnant has been multiplied and grown to a multitude and it is overflowing with joy. It's because God has liberated his people and God has brought peace to his people. But there's another reason given in verse 6. And in verse 6, it doesn't just seem to be the reason for the joy, but it's also the reason for the other two things, the liberation and the peace. It is the the root of their salvation. This is a description now that we're going to see of the light that has dawned on God's people. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. These verses have several very important contrasts. Verses 4 and 5 talk about the oppressors of God's people being broken and all their enemies being crushed in war. And verse 6 tells us why. By saying that a child will be born. What? A child? A little kid is going to be the cause of our redemption and our peace? Yes, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. But then we learn a little bit more about 
this child. It turns out that he is a king. Verse 6 says that the government will be upon his shoulder. Notice that this is in contrast to the staff of the oppressor on the shoulder of his people. The government will be upon his shoulder. And verse 7 says that he will sit on the throne of David. It's clear that this is a reference to the promise, the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. He promised David that he would have an offspring, a seed that would sit on his throne and his kingdom would last forever. There would be no end to it. This little child is the one who will sit on that throne. He is the promised king. A child king who will redeem God's people from oppression and defeat their enemies in battle. And whose kingdom will be a kingdom that will never end. This is a contrast. This should leave us wondering. Isaiah tells us more about this king with four names. Before we jump into those four names, though, I, I want to remind us of the context of what we're reading. The two verses that I just read, if you've been in church, no doubt you've heard those verses dozens of times. But remember what is happening in Isaiah and why he is saying this. Judah and Israel are both being tempted to make alliances with pagan kings for their protection. How are we going to save ourselves? How are we going to avoid war and destruction? Let's look for a strong and powerful king who can protect us. So they look to Assyria. And then later they look to Egypt. And then later on they look to Babylon. And God says, no. The king whom I will provide will actually protect you and deliver you and give you rest. Don't look to the kings of the world for what only I can give you. Secondly, this is a prophecy to a people who are experiencing judgment. They're without hope. They know that they are about to be walking in darkness and they're about to be exiled to a land that is not their own. But Isaiah is giving them hope for what God has in store for them. He is shining a light in the midst of their darkness. And it's beginning to emerge that their hope is wrapped up not in an abstract idea or in a system of thought or in some manipulative political strategy. Their hope is wrapped up in a person. Their light and their hope and their peace and their joy are resting on this little child king. Isaiah tells us four of his names in verse 6. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Each of these four names promise an embodiment of our hope. Wonderful Counselor, you may have seen this plastered on the wall of a Christian therapist's office, which is not a bad idea, but that's probably a bit misleading as to what Wonderful Counselor means. A counselor here is not someone who is giving life advice or therapy. It's someone who is able to make wise decisions and wise plans or judgments. And wonderful here means something like supernatural, something to wonder at. What we are supposed to imagine when we read Wonderful Counselor about this king is another Solomon. 
whose wisdoms and wise judgments were marveled at, not just in Israel, but by the nations. And be careful that as you read this and you begin to think about a king making decisions, that you don't imagine that this is some savvy political maneuvering that is somehow detached and impersonal. The news that we have a supernatural counselor is the confidence that our king will never be befuddled or puzzled by our problems or our difficulties. Do you remember when the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, what she said at seeing his wisdom and his wise decisions? She praised him for sure, but what she focused on was how happy the people in his kingdom must be. This is what she says in 1 Kings 10. This is to Solomon. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. She said the report that I heard wasn't even the half of it. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. We are a happy people because the wonderful counselor who is the wisdom of God is our king. The second name that is given to this child is mighty God. Mighty here doesn't just mean strong. Elsewhere, it's translated strong warrior. This is a warrior God. The little child, again, is a strong and powerful warrior. But what's more than that, He's God. This exact title is given to the Lord himself, to Yahweh, just in the very next chapter. It says that Israel will return to the mighty God. It's clear that this is not some other God. This isn't like a small G God. This is God. This is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's so easy for us to brush past this because we've heard it so many times. But this is nothing to brush past. God isn't just sending another David or another Solomon. He isn't just sending some human king who will end up failing and one day die. He himself is coming. In Isaiah 7, we're told that the sign that Ahaz will receive is the sign of Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is how God will be with us. A child king who is called Mighty God. The third name we see is Everlasting Father. Everlasting is pretty straightforward in what it means, even though as Eric has said again and again in his CE class, it's not something that our minds can actually grasp. This king will go on forever. There will never be a time that he is not living and reigning over his people Verse 7 repeats the same idea twice. There will be no end to the king or to his kingdom. His kingdom will never fail. The name father here, just to quell any difficulties, the name father here uh, isn't a reference to the first person of the Trinity. That's not a common title for God in the Old Testament. It's a reference to his protection, It's a reference to his role, the king's role, particularly as the protector. It's used of other rulers to show their care and concern for 
their people just like a good father would have. And it's especially used of God to show his care and his concern for the helpless. He is a caring and compassionate father who will last forever, who will not die, who will never see a day where he is not king over his people. And this is a reminder to us that we maybe miss because of the way our government works. The problem with good rulers is that they will die. This is a perennial problem in Israel. Every time they have a good ruler like Samuel or like Josiah, they die and their sons who reign in their place undo all the good that they did. Brothers and sisters, the fatherly, tender, mighty, and wise care of King Jesus will never end. He will never turn from doing you good. We will never see his health decrease and worry about what is next. There is no four-year term on his reign. His rule of justice and righteousness and peace will last forever. Your hope and confidence and joy do not have an expiration date. The final title that this king is given is Prince of Peace. This is what we've seen the last two weeks when the tools of war will be beaten into farming equipment. The instruments of slavery and war will be thrown into a bonfire so that they can never be used again. And this is so important for us to get, especially maybe as Reformed and Evangelical Christians. We are very good, and I am glad, we are very good at remembering that Jesus saves us from ourselves. Praise God, Jesus saves me from my own sin and the guilt and punishment of my sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. But we also must remember that Jesus saves us from our enemies. He doesn't just cleanse us. He also conquers for us. To use the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Jesus is not just our priest who pays for our sins and reconciles us to God. He is also our king who rules and defends us and restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Brother, sister, there will be a time where you are no longer afraid of anyone or anything. There will be a time where you're not harassed by the fears of others. Your sin will be forgiven. But also it and its tempting power will be crushed forever. There will be a time where the church will not be opposed by the world, but will flourish in peace because the Prince of Peace reigns as our King. Remember the promise of this passage. Those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. The remnant has become a multitude. Those who have sorrow upon sorrow have increased their joy. Why? Because a child who is the mighty God has become our king. Christian, you already know this. But this life that we live in is not yet like what we just read. There is still darkness in our world. Our sin and our enemies are still present in our lives. Sorrow has not been totally cast out yet. But the light has dawned. The king 
has come. He lived in our darkness. He experienced our sorrow and suffered at the hands of our enemies. But he is not dead. He is risen. Brothers and sisters, our king has come. Our hope has arrived. He now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do not look for salvation in any other name. Lasting peace and overflowing joy will not come from the kings of the earth or the successes of your life or the approval of others. Those things will fail you. And even when, they're fl- when, when they bring pleasure, their pleasure will be fleeting. It will not last. Only Jesus is our lasting peace and our sure hope. Only he is the light of the world. Hear his words again, the words of our king as we close. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you all pray with me? Father, renew our hearts. Renew our wills that we might run to Jesus. I pray that for those in this room who have never trusted in Him, that they would see in Him their only hope in life and in death. I pray that for those who have trusted in Him for a long time, that we would continue to rest upon him for salvation. Let us run to him for our rest and for all our good and hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.